Om Mahiranmaye Parikoshe Virajan Brahmaniskalam Tachubram Jyotisham Jyoti Tadyaratma Vidho Vidduhu Shining like burnished gold, highest and deepest, the core intelligence of living beings, partless, invisible, and free from any taint, there shines Brahman. It is that which the Guru teaches. It is that which the wise exalt in. Om peace, peace, peace. Om Satyena, Om Satyena, Labhyastapasa, Hesa Atma, Samyagyanena, Brahmacharyena, Nicham, Antaha, Sharirehi, Jyotir, Mayohi, Shubraha, Yampashanti, Atayaha, Kshinadoshaha, Om Shanti, 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 The Atman, the indivisible self within, is attained by moderation, by knowledge, by austerity, and by veracity, all constantly cultivated. When mental impurities dissolve due to this practice, then the seer beholds it, radiant and ever free, existing everywhere, even here, in this very mind and body. Om peace, peace, peace. Om Sahana, Om Sahana Vavatu, Sahana Bunaktu, Sahaviryam Karavavahai, Tejasvi Navaditamastu Ma Vidveshavahai Om Shanti 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 May Brahman protect us, may Brahman sustain us, and may Brahman illumine our thinking process. May we not find fault with each other, with the world, or with the teachings. And may what we study be a source of inspiration to us eternally. Om peace, peace, peace. And may peace be unto us and may peace be unto all. Om Hari Om. Good morning. It's Saturday morning, the 1st of October. So we start into a new month, auspicious month too, because it's the month of Navaratri, the nine days and nine nights of Divine Mother worship especially precious to disciples of Sri Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, whose chosen ideal was Divine Mother of the Universe, Mother Kali. That same Mother Kali is also named Mother Durga, and she's worshipped around the world, and especially in the East and in India, as the Mother of the Universe, or the Wisdom Goddess, or the Primeval or Primordial Mother, that Shakti power, and the Shakti power that's one with the formless Brahman. 
So this month is very auspicious, and it's an auspicious beginning to Navaratri, but it's an auspicious ending to Bhagavad Gita because we finished chapter 17 last time I was here, and in today's class and in Sunday's class we'll take in two halves, chapter 18, which is on the board in part. You see the yoga of liberation and renunciation. We finished chapter 17 last time with Sri Krishna recounting various teachings on the gunas, that is the sattva, rajas, and tamas, balance, restlessness, and inertia. And the last thing he said to us in chapter 17, or he said to Arjuna, and thereby to us by way of Arjuna, is that anything that you do in life, anything that you practice, anything that you gift away, or any austerity that you do, comes to nothing if it's not done with faith. So that word shraddha is very key to our Vedantic teachings and to yoga and to all the other Eastern darshanas, adamantine faith. That's shraddha, and he ended chapter 17 by talking about that. If you don't have that kind of faith when you live, when you act, when you think, when you move, when you do and when you don't do, when you gift things away, when you sacrifice, when you practice austerities, then all of those things really come to nothing in the end. It's like Sri Ramakrishna saying, many zeros placed end on end add up to zero, but if you put a one in front of them, then it adds up to a huge number. So that faith in Brahman, Brahmanishta, as he's going to be talking about in this chapter, uh, one-pointed faith in Brahman, also one of the necessary requisites of tantric sadhana. So you'll find it there mentioned in Patanjali's Yoga, which we're studying over the email. You'll find it in our Vedanta, emphasized very strongly, and you'll find it here in the Bhagavad Gita. With that as sort of a precursor and a way of segueing ourselves into this chapter, it's quite a long chapter, I think the longest in the Gita, sporting some 78 slokas. And there on the board, I've put enough to get us through today's class, I believe, I'll try and make it up to the four varnas, which is about the middle of the chapter, and then tomorrow we'll take the rest of it, and we'll then have completed our study of the Bhagavad Gita, and we'll go on to another great scripture. Well, it's sort of fitting that Sri Krishna saves these final opinions he has on moksha, on liberation. It's called moksha sannyasa yoga, this chapter in Sanskrit. Moksha means liberation. Remember, if you say moksha, the Vedantic seers aren't describing something that can be attained. That has to be seen first and foremost. It's something that's already in existence. It's always in existence. And actually mind and world and thought come after it. It's the original state of your being. And it's also the original state of your mind. Because we know the mind is very problematic, but we're always talking about dual mind when we talk about the problematic mind. We're always overlooking the non-dual mind, which is the original mind, which is pure radiance. What does it radiate? Non-dual intelligence. Its very nature is intelligence. And it's the intelligence of the most intelligent ones. So if you have, in a field of science, if you have a great genius like Einstein, or in the field of spirituality, if you have a great genius like Gaudapada, you'll find that that mind is tuned into its highest intelligence. And that intelligence is seen to be, when it's looked at, 
to the nth degree, non-dual. That means it doesn't have divisions and separations. It's existing throughout, and throughout means beyond space and time. Paramita. It's supreme to all the three phases of time, and it's supreme to the three movements of time, space, and causality. Desha, Kala, and Nimitta. And that being the case, then you have an idea of what moksha is. Liberation isn't something that comes about through evolution. It's not something that comes about via purification. It's not something that comes about by escaping sin or damnation. And it's not something that comes about via your self-efforts, although your self-effort purifies the dual mind and makes it see what's already there at the substratum of the dual mind, that is the non-dual mind. So all these things that I've just mentioned may be necessary requisites of attaining the state, but the state's not really attained at all. It's something that's already your true nature. We call that Atman. So Atmic reality is the very consistency of moksha. So he's talking about moksha sannyasa yoga, moksha liberation, sannyasa, how to renounce. The word that's used in here in this translation is called abandonment. Abandonment or renunciation of action is a question that arises in Arjuna's mind right away. He's saying at the very first sloka, I want to know, Krishna, the truth of sannyas. What is this thing called abandonment or renunciation? And also, chaga, the austerities that lead one to the state of renunciation, which then again, of course, lead one to the realization of moksha, liberation. So those are words that need to be defined out front. Krishna is going to answer him, and I've put that first sloka there on the board. Actually, it's sloka two, but it's the first listing. Kamya karma. That's another term that needs to be defined, and Krishna defines it nicely when he says, the renunciation of kamya karma is what the sages declare to be sannyas. So if you really want to know what sannyas is, it's not just a taking of vows and then sort of a following of a monastic life. It's it's much deeper than that. It's the renunciation of kamya karma. Kamya karma, according to one line of thinking in the sages and seers, is based upon renouncing health, wealth, long life, progeny, name, fame, title, land, and social status. That's what true sannyas is, according to one line of thinking, one, one group of sages. So name, fame, wealth, land, status, as well as health, wealth, long life, pleasure, children, family, and all those. That's one way of thinking of sannyas. Also, they add to that the desire for heavenly enjoyment. You renounce any longing for going to a higher place than this human existence, like to a, another realm of name and form that's beyond the body, but nonetheless is based upon less pain and more pleasure. Because you remember the Upanishadic seers uh, in such great Upanishads as the Ishivash Upanishad and Mundaka Upanishad, you hear them talking about doing many, many hundreds of years of rituals to appease the gods and then finding that they got to the status of the gods, but then they just got routed into the cycle of rebirth and reborn back on earth. So they were going back and forth between heaven and earth in these states of projected mind. And 
as a result, they wanted to find a way out of that, and they wanted to find a way to the transcendent reality, what I just chanted about, salutations to the formless Brahman, thou art what is real, what is true, and what is beneficial. So that which is beyond name and form, thus beyond family and wife and husband and kids and wealth and social status and jobs and land and cattle and all the things that people in that time and people in this time are still hankering after. Objects. Objects of desire, objects of pleasure, objects of wealth. So one renounces those if one takes to true sannyas and of course, there are two different ways to renounce those things. One way is the monastic way where you renounce them externally and internally, and the other way is the way of the person who still remains in the world. They renounce it internally. That is, they realize those things never lead to happiness and often lead one in the opposite direction if attached to. So they give them up internally in the mind. But they still go on moving amidst the objects of the senses and in the world working and so forth. And that leads really to Sri Krishna's explanation further of sannyas and renunciation. That was sloka 2. He's talking about renunciation of kamya karma. Kamya is a word based on the Sanskrit word kama, which means desire. So you renounce all desire-based action. It's good for everyone, not only good for the monk, but good for the householder. Anything that you desire, you should renounce, because desires are what are leading you back into embodied condition. And they're also what's causing you to collect in your mind various samskaras, various mental knots, which then route you into connection with people and things which aren't of the highest benefit for you. It's another reason why you renounce health, for instance, because people have a different definition of what health is. Of course, the seers would think of that as spiritual health, what makes you strong, what makes you independent, what makes you free, that's healthy. Anything that causes you to be bound to anyone or anything is unhealthy. So they have a, a different definition of health than most beings have. So renounce kamya karma, he says off the bat. Another addendum to that teaching, you might say, would be to renounce the fruits of those things. In other words, you can go ahead and have a family and wife and lands and all those things, but if you renounce them truly internally, then you're not attached to the fruits of those things. You're not at all attached to any of those things that are appearing and disappearing every few years or every lifetime, and you instead place your focus on reality. That's where your mind should always be on God. You must love God first and foremost. Love God with your whole heart, with your whole soul, and your whole mind. What part of that teaching of Christ didn't you understand? That you should start loving the world instead when he said, you can't serve two masters, God and mammon, you have to serve one. So you love God, and then you move among the things of the world knowing them to be unreal, that is, knowing them to be transitory or secondary. So that teaching with its addendum is stated first and foremost out front in answer to Arjuna's question by the great archetypical soul Sri Krishna. In other words, to repeat that, renunciation of kamya karma, desire-based action, is what the sages call sannyas. So you don't even have to take a vow of sannyas to be a sannyasin. You can therefore just renounce the fruits of karma, kamya karma, and if you've renounced properly, then you have the vow of sannyas inside of you naturally. And make sure you abandon the fruits of those things in any case.
He says further in Sloka 3, which is not on the board, but uh, we'll read it anyway, some sages declare that all actions should be relinquished as evil. Others say that sacrifices, gifts, and austerities should not be relinquished, but everything else should. So there's two other ways of thinking then. There's four groups of sages that are thinking various things. The first two we've already just been through, but these should be looked at too. In other words, there's a whole group of sages or seers that renounce completely all action. They abandon all karmas, and they want to get out of this mundane life as quick as they possibly can, put it completely to rest, out of the embodied condition. Those are called videhamuktis. They're very great beings. They don't have any attachment to life whatsoever, and they get out of the embodied condition as soon as they can, and they never come back. And then there's a fourth way of thinking, and that is that, yes, you should relinquish all action except sacrificing, doing your yagyas. That's a kind of a hard word for us to understand because although we do sacrifice as a Western culture, it's not brought into the forefront of our mind that all of life is a sacrifice. We're thinking, well, I'm sacrificing my time so that I can work and gain money so that I can put my kids through college, and that's the sacrifice I'm doing. Or I'm sacrificing such and such money and such and such time to bring about some end, but we don't really call it a sacrifice or think of it as a sacrifice, that is, as an austerity. We think of it as a duty, or we think of it maybe as just something that we have to do by way of drudgery, because it's what you should do in life, or supposed to do in life. But if you come to think of those things as an actual austerity, as a sacrifice, and you're consciously doing them with faith, shraddha, in the non-dual Brahman, then they become a means for a purification. And that's what he says here, that although some sages think that all work should be renounced, there's others who say that sacrifices, gifts, dhanam it's called, and austerity should be done. He brings us back into focus again by saying that all action should be done free of the desire for the fruits of karma. So basically, in the first three slokas, he's given Arjuna a four-part answer. Renounce all kamya karmas, renounce the fruits of action, and some sages say even if you're of that kind of temperament, renounce all action. And then if you're the kind that stays in the world, then make sure you keep doing your sacrifices, your austerities, and your gifts as a way of purification. He's not through with this teaching by any means. He's going to take it apart in so many ways that you can't even shake a stick at all of them. And that's what's on the board. You see it all there. Five causes of action, the three incitements to action, the three constituents of knowledge, the three ways of knowing, the three kinds of action, the three kinds of actor, the three kinds of intelligence, the three kinds of maintenance of action, the three kinds of happiness in the fourfold caste, that all falls into this whole teaching that springs from Arjuna's first question. What's true renunciation and what is the austerity around it? All of these things come flowing out of Sri Krishna now in various triputtis, groups of knowledge that are put in threes. In Sloka 4, which is before the sloka placed on the board, he says, learn from me the truth about abandonment, that is about this renunciation, sannyas. Verily, 
the best of all renunciation has been declared to be of three kinds. And that's where he gets to sloka five. There you see it on the board. Yagya, Dhanam, Tapa, and Chajam. This is called purifiers of the wise. These are the three ways of purifying the mind according to wise beings. Yagya, Dhanam, Tapa, and Chajam. What are those things? He says, acts of Yagya, sacrifice, gift, austerity should not be given up but should be performed because they purify the mind. Even for a person who's already got a pure mind, you'll find that they'll continue to engage in yagya, sacrifice, dhanam, charity, or generosity to various beings, and uh, tapa, austerity, because those purify the mind. But, he says in Soka 6, even these actions should be performed giving up attachment to all the fruits. This is my certain and best belief. So any kind of conclusion that one wants to draw or one wants to think of around how to act in the world, how to, how to perform actions, and what spirit to do those actions, Krishna puts that into a, a very fine conclusion. These actions should be performed always by all beings, but they shouldn't be done for the sake of getting any fruits from them. They should be done as a matter of course. Yagya dhanam tapaha karma na chajyam karman evatat is the Sanskrit phrase. These three are the purifiers of the wise. So the wise engage in those things, but they do them free of any kind of desire for fruit. As a witness of all things. You find that people get into that mode and live a very evenly balanced life, sattvic life, if they stay free of attachment and engaging in the wrong way. Next, and on the board, he talks about tamasika, rajasika, and sattvika tyagas. That is, those austerities that are inferior, mediocre, and superior. He says, the abandonment of obligatory duty is not proper, Arjuna, such abandonment out of ignorance is declared to be tamasika. That is very slothful and ignorant. Not well thought out at all. And you see there are a lot of people who, even people who renounce the world or say they want to renounce the world, if they're doing it just to get out of working or getting away from duty because they think that of sannyas as a, a way of shirking all responsibility, that's an improper way of renunciation. Krishna says you should instead engage in these obligatory duties and do them free of desire. So that's one kind of renouncing, doing austerity, tamasika, or out of aversion. That's the tamasika way of abandoning something, and that's to be eschewed. The next way, the rajasika way, he says, that one who from fear of bodily trouble abandons action because it is painful, thus performing rajasika abandonment obtains not the fruits thereof because it puts the body through too much work and also because it's painful to do. That is, you're averse to it because it has certain difficulties to it. Instead of doing that as a way of purifying they shirk that duty and therefore they don't get the fruits thereof because if you do that duty that's difficult and 
find your way through to the end of it, then you get a certain kind of benefit from that. The benefit of perseverance and, and coming through to the end of a certain work. But if you instead abandon it because of those troubles and those evils which are a part of work, then you don't get that fruit. So he says you should not engage in a rajasika renunciation either. But he says about sattvaka work, whatever obligatory duty is done, Arjuna, merely because it ought to be done, abandoning attachment and also fruit, that abandoned is deemed to be sattvaka. So you have a right to renounce that kind of element in work. You do the work simply because it ought to be done and you don't abandon it, but you do it without the fruit. That's called a sattvaka way of doing something. And that, he says, is the better way of doing things. In slokas 7, 8, and 9, we just did. The next sloka that's on the board is 12, but let's read this slokas in between. Sloka 10, The relinquisher imbued with balance and a steady understanding and with doubts dispelled hates not a disagreeable work, nor is he attached to an agreeable work. Well, there you go. He defines it even more in terms of all the teachings as if uh, to say that if there's any doubts creeping into the mind or misunderstanding at all, and Sloka 10, he pretty much describes well what he means to say for your understanding is that you shouldn't hate a disagreeable work just because it's disagreeable, nor should you run to embrace an agreeable work just because it's agreeable, but instead you should stay steady-minded. He says, in sattva with a steady understanding, Sattva samavistaha is the word, and medavi, pervaded by purity and intelligence, that kind of work. You take on that work, all work, with that kind of state of mind, and you become free of karmas. You don't accrue any other karma. And in Sloka 11 he says, for it is indeed impossible for an embodied being to renounce action entirely. But that one who renounces the fruit of action is regarded as one who is the true renunciate. So you can't get rid of action, but you can renounce the fruits of action and therefore get above and beyond those problems that are inherent in action. So he says it's impossible to renounce completely, but that one who renounces the fruits is regarded as the highest renouncer. In Sloka 12, which is on the board, he talks about the threefold fruits of action. Trividham karmanaha phalam. Phalam means fruit, karma means action. Trividham is this threefold or three teachings collected together in one little group. Threefold fruits of action. What are those? Evil, good, and mixed. If you've read Swami Vivekananda, he he said in his writings, there's nothing in the world that's all good, there's nothing in the world that's all bad. Quite often it's a mixture of all these things. So there's also a teaching about the four kinds of karma. Black, black and white, white and colorless. So black is of course evil action or evil karma. Black and white is mixed, whereas you have good and evil mixed together and you can't decide right or wrong. Then you have white, which is good karma, 
and then you have colorless, which is, of course, superior. No karma at all. It doesn't show up. That's what Krishna is trying to explain to Arjuna, this colorless karma. So, in terms of knowledge and action, he begins speaking here about three kinds of fruits of action. He's going to take this later into the three kinds of knowledge, which are very much connected. So he's talking about karma that comes from thinking and acting, the effects that come from thinking and acting. And in fact, the teaching about mixed karma is very good because you'll find when you look at any situation that everything seems to be very mixed. That you can do a good act and it can have a bad effect later. Or you can do a bad act and it can have a good effect later. So that's what confuses beings about karma. They can't come to any apt conclusion what they should do because everything they do turns sweet or sour in turns and then turns back around on them so they get confused. And that is the nature of the field of karma. It's a field. Things are growing in it and dying. Things are fructifying and things are going to seed. It's the mind field that you're studying about in the email course on Raja Yoga that we're taking lately. And Patanjali puts it in terms of the five kinds of the mind field. And one is very disturbed, and one is very lazy, and one is very mixed. And those three minds aren't fit for yoga. They're always accruing karma and having to deal with karma over lifetimes. But that mind that's one-pointed and that mind that's no mind at all, Neruddha, the state of complete neutralization where all karmas are continually neutralized, those two are what we would correlate here to this idea of colorless karma, where it's continually neutralized the moment it's rising. Anything that's rising in the field is immediately neutralized so that no growth or birth or death or anything is going on in it. The mind field is just left pure and in its natural state, which we were calling atmic reality or moksha. It's just left untouched, witnessed, and there's no residue left over, no residual karmas left over in that mind. So, Krishna says in Sloka 12, the threefold action of fruit which is evil, good, and mixed, accrues after death to one who does not relinquish. But there is none ever for the one who renounces. Karma doesn't affect the non-dual state. Any act or thought or deed doesn't affect Brahman, doesn't affect your true nature. You can be doing all sorts of evil actions yourself, but your Atman inside remains pure. Of course, you're not going to realize that Atman until you neutralize your karma and you see God face to face, God is infinitely and intrinsically pure, so an impure thing can't approach a pure thing. But nevertheless, you have to know that this non-dual Brahman is then outside of the pale of karma and its effects. You know that as the reality, then you look back into the relative world and you see that this karma that's being done is having its effect, but it's having its effect later. When we were studying the Vivekachudamati over the last couple of weeks, we had those teachings about Sanchita, Parabdha, and Agami karma, the karma of the past, the karma of the present, and the karma of the future. Karma of the past is taken up. A bit of it you've taken, and you've brought it forward in this life, and now you're working on it. Your body, your present state of mind, the way you think and act and so forth is all a result of karma that you've brought forward from the past and you're working it out right now, that's called parapta karma. 
kriyamani karma also is a karma which because of the karma you're working on right now as prabhupada karma you're getting effects from that too if you're not neutralizing the karma right now you're creating more karma called kriyamani karma which will then come forward in another life of course you can neutralize that future karma by acting or not acting in a certain way in this lifetime and you can then of course get free of all karma but if you understand that idea of those three or four kinds of karma that are going on past present and immediate and future then you can understand more Sri Krishna's teaching here about the threefold fruits of action evil good and mixed and how it comes to being after they die they're so busy working on their Prabhupada karma right now and they're doing other actions along with it and those actions later on are going to fructify that's the web of maya that's the web of deceit and delusion that you want to stay out of you're so busy right now working on karma that you've taken up from the past that you don't realize you're creating karma in the present for the future and that's going to fructify in another lifetime but what the seers and saints and sages have done is they've called their karma into operation they've neutralized it and now they're living in such a state where they're not creating any more for the future so they're not going to have to be drawn into the bodied condition in circumstances that are negative against their will they could take on a body of their own choice and of their own volition but they'll never be pulled in against their will and that's why you see them born in ideal situations Krishna describes those situations in the Gita born in the family of rishis born in a family of yogis born to rich people who have wealth but who also use that wealth for terms of higher pursuit higher intellectual and spiritual pursuit those are three kinds of ideal births that beings who still want to take an embodied condition for whatever reason will take but other beings don't take those they are poor, pulled into various situations with various beings that they had karmas with in the past and they'll have those karmas again and that's all based upon this teaching right here sloka 12 and chapter 18 is a very important sloka for understanding karma especially if you want to get out of karma if you want to get out of suffering so again threefold fruit of action is evil good and mixed it accrues after death to that one who does not relinquish properly that one who is not renounced but it never comes to the one who renounces properly that one who's renounced in the proper way and who's resolved and adamant about that renunciation to them no more karma will accrue but those who haven't renounced properly who are still indeterminate who are still in doubt about how to act or why the fruits of action are coming back they don't know the teachings about good mixed and, and evil action they can't determine between what's transcendent and what's relative that karma will come back on them and they'll find themselves in this life again in the same situation they were before or worse we're talking about a way that Krishna is describing to Arjuna where we neutralize all karma and live free moksha freedom so these teachings of karma sannyas and austerity and renunciation are very important they're very key they're the very fabric of Vedanta and yoga and tantric practice too they can't be uh, said enough and they can't be harped upon enough 
They can't be studied enough. You must really delve into them and understand them. And not just be one of those who glibly say karma, maya, Krishna, banter words about, but actually know the teachings of Krishna and what he's saying about karma and how to neutralize it and how to get into a free state. What's the point of these teachings, in other words? So we stop there at Sloka 12 to really emphasize that. Trividham karmanaha phalam, threefold fruits of action. So he wants you to get beyond knowledge, knowledge of the field, and knowledge that's merely intellectual knowledge. You must get beyond that to knowledge of your true self. That's what spirituality is all about. If you're interested in spirituality, that's what you should be after and aiming for. Not just intellectual pursuits or attainments or honors or glory or accolades or acumen, intellectual acumen alone. You should be seeking for the self in all. The self which you get by renouncing all heavens, earths, and hells, all hopes and fears. That self. Not the ego self which glorifies and delights in intellectual pursuits in secular subjects and heavenly existence. Kamya karma. Those are desire-based things. Get rid of those. Make sure you have them at a minimum under your control. But bring this into the forefront, this most important thing in your life call it what you will, God, Atman, or Moksha. So remember, as we embark into this teaching, which is very powerful in chapter 18, you have to take a big breath or a series of breaths and open your eyes and, and really face this front on if you want to understand it. As we launch into that, remember that he's not talking about knowledge as a positive thing here. It's something that's a very intermediary thing which is taking you to something higher. It's that second and third guna, rajas and sattva, that you want to get beyond. You're not just going to arrive at a great place in life and go, ah, oh, finally, I've got it all, everything's fine. No, that's the big delusion. Nothing is fine here in life. You have to be aware of the presence of evil, old age, death, and decay in life at all times. That's what it's called to be a seeker of truth. That's what you are when you become a yogi or a yogini or a Vedantist. You become imminently aware of those at all times as long as you have a body and mind. And that's why you practice sadhana all the time, so that you do stay aware of that fact. You never fall asleep in maya again. As long as you have a body-mind mechanism, so long you're going to have to be on your guard. And even more so when things get nice and good because that's where the sleep of delusion collects. That's the most dangerous part, when everything is going fine, because that's when you're in sattva and you could stop. You say, oh, I've attained. I don't need any more effort. I can enjoy the fruits of my actions, but Krishna told you long ago, renounce the fruits of your actions. Let the fruits come and go. Never grab them, but let them flow by. Utilize them as you will, but remain in that state of flow constant flow. If the universe is in constant flux, then you be in constant flux around it. That is from your stationary position as Atman, watch all things move around you and let them move. See, that's what it is to be a seer, right? You're seeing everything as it is. Not everything as you want it to be, or not everything as it appears to be. 
but as it is, that's what a seer or a yogi does. So I hope I've emphasized that strong enough and brought that to the fore enough. And now we look into this special teaching called the five causes of action. <laughs>